is Undaunted Life, a man's podcast. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Let's get into it. All right, guys, today we're going to be talking about Christianity and alcohol. This is actually something that has come up uh, fairly recently here for me. There's been uh, quite a few people in my life, people close to me, some people not so close to me, where this subject matter has come up. It hasn't always come up in a terribly polite or productive manner, but there seems to be a whole lot of confusion and a whole lot of misinformation, uh, in, in general, just not, not very well thought out philosophies on the subject of alcohol, specifically within Christianity. And so I want to dig into that a little bit here today, because I know if it was confusing for me, I'm sure it's going to be confusing for a lot of you guys. And for some of you, you've already been through this, you've already kind of gone through this philosophy. And so uh, I hope you would still listen to this so you can kind of get an understanding of where I'm coming from and how my research went. But I know for a lot of you guys out there, you just either act in one way or act in another way, and you don't really give it much thought. So hopefully we're going to be able to put some thought into our different philosophies. But um, before I get into the research here, I try to every time that I uh, say something that I've recorded uh, or that I've researched and then recorded and kind of gave you guys, I always try to give whoever wrote it as much credit as possible. And I try to make sure the sources that I go through for anything that I'm going through in here, I try to make sure that they're legitimate sources. And there's a lot of things out there that are not considered terribly legitimate. And one of those things is Wikipedia. And so Wikipedia, a lot of times, again, yes, things can be shifted and changed and moved. And, you know, that's always a funny thing whenever a team like gets beaten in the playoffs or a guy gets dunked on immediately. Someone goes into Wikipedia and changes their ownership to like somebody else or something, something weird like that. But Wikipedia, I felt like was really, really helpful here. It broke down some of the generalized arguments in this area and some of the history. Um, so I, I thought that was very, very well done by them. And it would also provided me the opportunity to go and fact check a lot of those things. So Again, I'm not getting paid by Wikipedia. This is not to say that they do everything incredibly well, but I felt like on this particular subject matter, it was very, very helpful in formalizing the early parts of my research. But now launching into a little bit of the research, it's not that simple of a subject matter. There, there's a whole lot of information and a whole lot of thought that has gone into this, and it's been thousands of years in the making. But essentially, if we were going to boil everything down, I want to try to make this as, as easily digestible for you as possible. There's basically three views on Christians consuming alcohol. There's three camps that you can be a part of. The first is prohibitionism. The second is abstentionism. And the third is moderationism, okay? And we're going to go into all three of those, and we're going to be looking at them in detail, and I'm going to give you all the different viewpoints there, and then we'll continue to launch into the other parts of this podcast. So let's go with the first one. Let's talk about prohibitionism, and this is exactly like it sounds. This is a worldview and a viewpoint on the subject matter where we're basically going to abstain from alcohol as a matter of law, and uh, we're going to basically abstain in all circumstances. And so this is a viewpoint that is typically held by people that would align themselves with the Southern Baptist Convention. Uh, Seventh-day Adventists also look at this. Um, and it's seen by many to be a, a very old school and a old school type of a thing. And we'll talk a little bit more here in a second about why this is considered kind of an old school viewpoint. But this viewpoint is also held by some Christian heavyweights that you may have heard of before, like Charles Spurgeon, uh, William Booth. He's the founder of the Salvation Army. Billy Sunday, who is an athlete and an evangelist. There's some really big time people that think that we should be prohibited from having alcohol in all forms. But to kind of give you a little bit more information about what prohibitionists believe, one, they claim that the Bible condemns drinking alcohol entirely. They don't, they don't see any scripture in the Bible or they don't exegete it in a way that would give us the idea that we would be able to consume alcohol. 
Also, they claim that wine, when it's referred to in scripture for medicinal use or uh, any type of other stories, maybe uh, with Jesus in them or anything like that, that the wine that was referred to was non-alcoholic. They also claim that most Bible translators, I don't really know why or, or where they would get this idea, but they claim that most Bible translators actually exhibited bias in favor of alcohol. Uh, when they were doing their translations. And so they're basically saying the, these people who that are trying to be as, as core and conservative to this, what the scripture says, they're basically saying the people that have translated it to a language that we can understand today, they didn't do it accurately. So I think inadvertently, they're basically saying that the entirety of the gospel is, is not accurate in a lot of ways that these translators had the power to change this and change it away from the original uh, Greek or Hebrew or Aramaic or whatever it was written down in. So that's a little bit troublesome. But the last thing here is that prohibitionism uh, has reduced in popularity considerably in the West and considerably in the United States since prohibition ended in the United States. So it's kind of ironic that this uh, has kind of gone by the wayside a little bit. But in, in a nutshell, I can go in a lot of different directions, but that's what prohibitionism is. That's essentially what that group looks at. It's not an incredibly popular opinion today, but there are certainly people that still believe that. Now, the second group is abstentionism. Okay. So that is a much harder word to say than what it sounds. So if I screw it up, then just forgive me. Abstentionism. Okay. So this is basically abstaining from alcohol as a matter of cautiousness or prudence or discretion, something more so like that. So this is a view that is typically held uh, modernly by Baptists, Pentecostals, Nazarene, Methodists, kind of that group. And there's also some Christian heavyweights that have this viewpoint. Uh, The late Billy Graham, Albert Moeller, who's a favorite of this podcast, John MacArthur, John Piper, and some others. These are people that basically think that you should abstain uh, as a good idea, that it's a good idea to abstain. So I want to kind of go into a lot of different directions about some of the arguments and what some of they believe here. Um, But many churches... So think of entire church units that kind of hold to this point of view. They require abstinence from alcohol from their church leadership positions. So if you're going to be in leadership within the church, you have to abstain from alcohol entirely. And so uh, my guess here is that they're getting that from 1 Timothy 3.8. This is where it's basically talking about the qualifications for deacons. And this is 1 Timothy 3.8. Deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. And so I think they're using the not addicted to much wine part to suggest that they can't have alcohol at all, that they should abstain. So uh, I guess you can use your uh, deductive reasoning to determine whether or not that's a good idea. But to continue, abstentionists reject the prohibitionist arguments that wine referred to in scripture was non-alcoholic. Abstentionists don't believe that. They don't believe that every time that alcohol, specifically wine, that every time it was mentioned in scripture, that it wasn't actually alcoholic. They don't think that's a good idea. And the general consensus here, guys, is almost no serious biblical scholar or language scholar would consider that to be the case either. I mean, the the abolitionist position when it comes to the wine described in the Bible being non-alcoholic, it's not really a tenable position, and we know that, and we have a lot of evidence to prove that. Uh, And abstentionists, they also believe that moderation has caused the alcohol problem in the world because they feel like if you, as a sinful being, uh, as a fallible human, if you're given the ability to moderate, that you will obviously take that to its logical ends, which for some people is abuse, right? So that's what they believe. They also believe that alcohol is simply too dangerous for most people. 
that it's just not a necessity for life or good living or any of those types of things. And so that that's another thing that they believe. But here's some of the arguments. So those are just kind of general ideas. But here's some arguments given for abstentionism. So I just want to kind of run through these uh, just like quick. And uh, one is that the Bible warns that alcohol can hinder moral discretion. And so we, we get this from Proverbs 31 verses 4 and 5. So I'm going to read from the ESV. Here we go. It is not for kings, O Lemuel, it is not for kings to drink wine or for rulers to take strong drink, lest they drink and forget what has been decreed and pervert the rights of all the afflicted. So, so this is kind of thinking, you know, if you're in a position of authority or a position of power and then you get drunk, then obviously you're going to forget about all the altruistic things that you did or, or something. That's kind of the, the viewpoint there. Then there's also the argument that drinking alcohol as a Christian may offend other Christians that don't drink. And so essentially what, what this is looking at is that this is going to create a, a schism of sorts between believers, right? It's going to create a rift of sorts between believers. Um, I don't know if I really, well, I was going to be nice. This is a really stupid argument that, that if you drink alcohol and someone else that doesn't drink alcohol, that they're just going to be mega offended. I feel like this argument, which is not a kind of new age argument. This is an argument that kind of plays into the whole, uh, like PC culture thing. Like let's make everything politically correct. Let's not say anything that could at all offend somebody. I just don't really like that one uh, very much. Another argument that they make is that you should abstain from alcohol because of the sin of drunkenness and that you as a Christian need to make a public statement against it. And the way that you make that public statement is that you say, look, I'm able to do this, but I'm not going to do this. Okay. So that's another argument. Another one is that drinking was more acceptable in ancient times. Like there was a lot of people that they had to drink. They had to, they had to use wine to purify polluted drinking water, uh, different things like that. And so that's something that they claim and that, that they stick to. That's an argument. Another one is that just in general, wine was much weaker in ancient times than it is today. That alcohol is more potent today. And even further that alcohol is much more efficiently produced today. Thus, it's more readily available and it's cheaper, which leads to more people being able to consume it. And you can get this really, really strong alcohol, something with a high alcohol content and not pay very much for it, which leads to alcoholism, which kind of feeds back into the moderation argument. So in general, that's what abstentionism, that's what they believe for the most part is that even though it's okay, even though it's biblically acceptable for you to do so, that you shouldn't do that. Okay, so we've talked about prohibitionism, abstentionism, and now we're going to talk about the last one, last one, which is moderationism. And so what what you believe within moderationism is that you can consume alcohol, but maintain moderate usage, right? It's right there in the name. Uh, this is a viewpoint that is typically held by Anglicans and Lutherans, a lot of reformed churches. So I know there's a lot of reformed guys that listen to this, uh, Roman Catholics, Ether, Eastern Orthodox, um, and in a lot of these groups that they still use fermented wine during communion right? Or the Eucharist or, or however they describe it. Um, and in those other two groups, they don't use fermented wine. Those are, those are grape juice only or, or some other type of substitute. But, um, I could go into a lot of different areas with moderationism, but I did find a really, really great quote that kind of encapsulated moderationism. So I'm just going to go ahead and read that to you here. Moderationism holds that prohibitionism errs by confusing the Christian virtues of temperance and moderation with abstinence and prohibition and by locating the evil in the object that is abused rather than in the heart and deeds of the abuser. Moreover, moderationists suggest that the prohibitionists and abstentionists positions denigrate God's creation and his good gifts and deny that it is not what goes into a man that makes him evil, but what comes out, that is what he says and does. And so I felt like that was a very fair summarization of these three different areas. But again, all of us kind of fit into one of those three. 
you can't really like hover between two because they're fairly well defined. And so for a lot of us, it brings about some big questions for us individually. For most of you, you didn't even have to think. Yeah, for some of you that grew up in church, you maybe grew up in a church that can, was considered more liberal or more conservative or, or more big city or more rural or whatever. And that kind of led to your viewpoints about this. But it begs a really, really big question. And this is the question. Why did prohibitionism and abstentionism become popular with many Christians? So I know for, for a lot of you listening to this, especially if you grew up in church, which again, as a reminder, I did not. You had some of the older people that were just like, nah, you shouldn't drink. And I remember the very first church I started going to was First Baptist West in Lawton, Oklahoma, right? And that was kind of a thing. I remember one of the first camps I went to, I think this was a, I can't remember the name of the camp, World Changers. It was a World Changers. I think I was in Missouri. Uh, yeah, I, anyway, that doesn't really matter. Missouri or Louisiana, I was in one of those two places. Where basically, you pay money to go be on work crews and you work on homes and people that are in kind of decrepit living conditions, you go and kind of assist those individuals and you clean up their houses and help build some stuff. And you have actual contractors that are helping you out. But anyway, it's not here nor there. I remember one of the nights when we're just hanging out in the, um, wherever we were, we were staying in like a junior high or something like that. We're in this gym and there's this guy talking. He's kind of talking about what we're going to be doing that week and blah, blah, blah. And for whatever reason, I can't remember a ton of details about this event or about this week that I spent out there, but I can remember this guy saying, you know, he was probably in his late 40s or something like that. Even to this day, I've never had a beer. And everyone just like started clapping. And I was like, I don't know. I think I was like, you know, 13 or 14 or something like that. And I started clapping too. I was like, oh man, that's pretty cool. I just thought that that's something adults did. You just drank beer. It was just kind of a thing. But he was saying that as like a a badge of honor. Like, you know, this was a a way that he, you should act. It wasn't like, hey, I haven't had a beer in 20 years because I used to be an alcoholic and, you know, I've beaten it and it's something I always have to keep an eye on. You know, just kind of as, as I grew older, I kept going back and thinking about that time and wondering why he said that because he was trying to elicit an, an applause. But again, back to the big question about why prohibitionism and abstentionism becomes popular or has become popular with many Christians. The thing that's weird about that is the first 1800 years or so, of Christianity, Christians drank alcohol. I mean, fairly regularly. I mean, it was just a part of their everyday lives. I mean, and they used alcoholic wine, 100% alcoholic wine for communion, not 100% alcohol. You get what I'm saying? But it was absolutely alcohol. Like it was an alcoholic wine for communion in the Eucharist. And so this all changed though in the 19th century. And so this is a thing that's very, very important for us. And so this kind of gives us a hint as to why we, even right now in 2019, why there's so much of this thought process about, it's almost like this internal struggle with alcohol and a Christian. And it has a lot to do with what they call the temperance movement. And so as opposed to trying to summarize this for you, I actually found a few paragraphs here that kind of give us a good idea of what the temperance movement was, why it came about. And then we'll talk a little bit more about how that kind of has back ended its way into how we feel about alcohol today. So here we go. In the midst of the social upheaval accompanying the American Revolution and urbanization induced by the Industrial Revolution, drunkenness was on the rise and was blamed as a major contributor to the increasing poverty, unemployment, and crime. Yet the temperate sentiments of the Methodists were shared only by a few others until the publication of a tract by eminent physician and patriot Benjamin Russ, who argued against the use of ardent spirits, i.e. distilled alcohol, introduced the notion of addiction, and prescribed abstinence as the only cure. Some prominent preachers like Lehman Beecher picked up on Rush's theme and galvanized the temperance movement to action. 
Though losing influence during the American Civil War, afterward, the movement experienced its second wave, spearheaded by the Women's Christians Temperance Union, and it was so successful in achieving its goal that Catherine Booth, co-founder of the Salvation Army, could observe in 1879 that in America, almost every Protestant Christian minister has become an abstainer. The movement saw that passage of anti-drinking laws in several states and peaked in its political power in 1919 with the passage of the 18th Amendment to the United States Constitution, which established prohibition as the law of the entire country by which was repealed in 1933 by the 21st Amendment. Initially, the vast majority of the temperance movement had opposed only distilled alcohol, which they saw as making drunkenness inexpensive and easy, and espoused moderation in temperance in the use of other alcoholic beverages. Fueled in part by the Second Great Awakening, which emphasized personal holiness and sometimes perfectionism, the temperance message changed to the outright elimination of alcohol. The legislative and social effects resulting from the temperance movement peaked in the early 20th century and began to decline afterward. The effects on church practice were primarily a phenomenon in American Protestantism and to a lesser extent in the British Isles and Nordic countries and a few other places. The practice of the Protestant churches were slower to revert and some bodies, though now rejecting their formerly prohibitionist platform, still retained vestiges of it such as using grape juice alone or besides wine in the Lord's Supper. So that kind of gives you an idea of the temperance movement. So again, this was a movement I want you to remember from some of the things that I described that wasn't really based on scripture. That wasn't really based on a a viewpoint that, hey, in this new revelation, not, you know, like Mormonism, but like in this new revelation about what was meant in the original Hebrew or the Greek or whatever the thing was, this is how we're going to act now. It was more of a social upheaval. It was a group of people that had kind of a, a social ideal of morality that they were going to be espousing to the rest of the world. Uh, and specifically starting with the United States, all the way to the point to where alcohol became prohibited in its use and sale and transport in the United States. Just think about that. I mean, that wasn't that long ago. I mean, not even a hundred years ago. So it's crazy to think of now in the culture that we live in now with the ubiquitous nature of uh, liquor stores and beer ads and all these different things to to have less than a hundred years ago, not even be able to do any of those things. Really, really interesting. So for the most part, what's happened here is there are still some remnants of the temperance movement today. That's why we're doing this podcast. That's why, because, you know, when I'm sitting with certain people that are close to me or certain things like that, and they're asking these questions almost in abiding and judgmental manner or making comments about alcohol consumption or why would anyone do such a thing? It's because of the the remnants that are left over from here, that's left over from the temperance movement. But at the same time, There's no quoting of scripture. There's no biblical study. It's just an ideal. So they are basically taking their set of ideals and morals and they're placing it onto the scriptures. And basically, if we violate those things or if we go counter to those things, they're not going to go to the scripture and prove us wrong because they can't. What they're going to do is they're just going to say, well, you're wrong and I'm right and I'm doing it the right way. So without getting too much onto a soapbox here, I want to actually go to the scripture here. And what does God have to say about alcohol? Because that's way more important than anyone's opinion, right? Because here as Christians, as thinking Christians in a thinking man's religion, this is something that's really important because we have a reference book that we can go to and get some sort of an understanding. So I'm going to go over several scriptures here that are kind of like 
basically giving us an idea of what God thinks about alcohol. And these are all very pro alcohol. The first and probably the most important is Psalm 104. And we're going to be looking at verses 14 and 15. So all the scripture readings I'm about to do will be from the ESV, just so you guys will know if you are following along. But Psalm 104 verses 14 and 15. You cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate, that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man oil to make his face shine, and bread to strengthen man's heart. So, here in this passage, we don't see a prohibition of alcohol. We see a description of alcohol and what it's supposed to do, which is gladden the heart of man. Okay? So that's very, very important as we move forward. The next is Ecclesiastes 9.7. Go, eat your bread with joy, and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. Pretty straightforward there. The next one, Isaiah 62, verses 8 and 9. The Lord has sworn by his right hand and by his mighty arm. I will not again give your grain to be food for your enemies, and foreigners shall not drink your wine for which you have labored. But those who garner it shall eat it and praise the Lord, and those who gather it shall drink it in the courts of my sanctuary. Right? So so in Isaiah, we're looking at one of the prophets here, and this is the Lord basically saying, uh, nope, you will have this wine, you will drink this alcoholic wine. It is the Hebrew word for, uh, or the Greek word for, for alcoholic wine, and you will enjoy it in my sanctuary. It's pretty straightforward, right? Then we see 1 Timothy 5.23. No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. So this is one of those areas when we talk about when alcohol is described in the Bible for medicinal purposes, right? And this is one of the first places that prohibitionists will look at, and they will look at this area and say, actually, that's not the same alcohol. That's really not it. And I was when I was doing my research, you could tell when you stumbled upon a prohibitionist blog because they were so dismissive of the original Greek and they were so dismissive of the language surrounding what type of alcohol was being discussed. Because it's so unbelievably clear that the the wine and the drink being discussed here in 1 Timothy 5.23 is alcoholic wine. But then also, the biggest argument that I make uh, whenever we're talking about this, it's because it's a direct corollary to what we're discussing, is Jesus' first miracle. Now, if if you go to someone that uh, you know considers themselves a prohibitionist or an abstentionist or something like that, um, you would probably ask them, "Hey, what was Jesus's first miracle?" And they might get it, but then they may not understand kind of the gravity by which them admitting that would would give them away. So I'm going to go ahead and read Jesus's first miracle, the story of that. And we have the recording of this in John chapter two, and this is verses one through twelve. I'll be reading them from the ESV here. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding twenty or thirty gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum and his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. So again, guys, we're looking at a story here of our Savior, the Savior of the entire world, that guy, 
The very first miracle he does is not spitting in some dirt, rubbing it around, making mud and putting it on someone's eyes and making them see. It's not raising a dead man from, from the dead, right? It's not healing someone that had leprosy. It's not driving out demons. It's turning water into wine so a party could keep going. I mean, what else do you need to say here? Like, I don't understand. It's kind of like when people, kind of some of the same people that have made the comments that are recently led to me doing this podcast, when they say that baptism is essential for salvation, as in you have to be dunked in water or you can't go to heaven, right? But there's so much wrong with that on so many different levels. But again, we see the examples in Jesus's life. We see the the three men on the cross, Jesus and the two criminals, right? One of the criminals uh, accepted Jesus at that moment. Jesus said, you will be with me today in paradise. They didn't take the guy down off of the cross, dip him in water and, you know, nail him back up, right? It's adding stuff to the scripture that's not there. And the thing that's very important about this story here is why would Jesus have done such a thing if alcohol by its very nature was a problem and could only be sinful. It's a gift from God, right? So that that's something that's very interesting for us. That obviously lets us know that, yes, you can consume alcohol, and that is a good idea for a lot of people. However, however, there's plenty of scripture that would say you need to proceed with caution. And there's three scriptures I want to bring up here because I do want to be fair about the subject. The first is Proverbs 20, verses 1. Wine is a mocker, strong drink is a brawler, and whoever is led astray by it is not wise. Right? It's pretty straightforward. Then we look at Galatians, Paul getting in on the action. This is Galatians 5, verses 19 through 21. Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Right? That's a pretty like scathing list of things, drunkenness being added. And then the last one is 1 Corinthians 5.11. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed, or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler. Not even eat with such a one, right? So the thing about this is obviously there is a way where alcohol can be enjoyed, and then there's a way that alcohol is not to be enjoyed. So this leads us to, from our perspective... Which viewpoint do we think is best out of the three we talked about earlier? And we obviously believe that moderationism is the best way for us to move forward. Because prohibitionism, we feel like that's antithetical and and really anti-biblical. Abstentionism, uh, some of the main tenets of that have some issues, uh, even just from an argumentative standpoint. But moderationism is one of those things where if you can handle it, it's something that helps reveal God's glory and his beauty to you. Because here's the thing, there are many good gifts from God that can be abused to the point of sin. It's not just alcohol, it's certainly alcohol, but what about sex? How about food, uh, rest, entertainment? I mean, there's all kinds of different things that are gifts from God, things that we are used, that can be used to glorify Him and for Him to reveal His beauty of His creation to us. But when they become idolaters, or when they become an idol, sorry, when they become an idol for us, it becomes a big issue. I mean, sex outside of wedlock, food <laughs> to the point of, of not honoring our bodies. We talk about that a lot. I talked about it on the last podcast where we're basically not honoring ourselves. If, you know, we're supposed to be given a Sabbath, but some people are slothful, right? So, you know, he gives us music. Music is a gift from him and those types of things. But if you're listening to so much music that you're like ignoring your family, like that's not a good idea. You're, you're always taking these things to the logical conclusion for most humans, which is sinful. 
which is overindulgence, right? But, but here's the thing that I want to make sure that we're talking about when we're talking about alcohol is can and should are very different things, right? Because it's obvious at this point that if you have any type of understanding of, of the scripture and exegesis that you can absolutely be a Christian and drink alcohol, absolutely 100%. But the should part is very different and it's contextual because some people can't control themselves. I mean, some people have addictive personalities, right? They're addicted to chemical substances of some kind, right? Some people have bad histories with alcohol. And so whether they become a Christian in the meantime doesn't really take it away some of the things they've had to deal with in terms of alcohol and abuse. I mean, some people have easily influenced friends that have trouble in these areas, right? And so I think there's a couple of scriptures here that will really help us uh, with understanding kind of the dynamic between can and should. The first is 1 Corinthians 10, 10, 23, and that's all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. So again, this is one of those things for you personally. If you can handle it, go ahead and enjoy yourself. But if you can't handle it, you should probably not do it, which leads us to Romans 14, 20 here. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is not good to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. So again, we go back to the story in John 2 about Jesus. Can we really assume Jesus would turn water into wine if it was wholly sinful? Completely sinful, and that's holy, W-H-O-L-L-Y, wholly sinful. Can we really imagine that that would be the case? If the entirety of the consumption of wine was some sort of a sinful act, in Jesus' revelation to the world where he's basically saying to everyone, this is who I am, you should follow me, this is going to be a crazy next three years of y'all's lives, why would he do that? Why would he do something that was so definitively sinful? Okay, so this is a very uh, difficult subject, I know for a lot of you out there, but this is a part of the podcast where you really need to do some internal dialogue and maybe go ahead and consult the Holy Spirit here. You know, uh, talk to the triune God through prayer. Do it. Do the things that you need to do. Because some of you out there have problems with alcohol. It's so clear. And if it's not clear to you, it's probably clear to everyone around you that cares about you. So, please do not take this podcast as an excuse for you to continue drinking if you have a drinking issue. I'm dead serious. Like, yes, I wanted to kind of give you a sense of the history and the different camps that are involved here and kind of why everyone thinks the way that they do and, and all those different things. But at the at the same time, this is not a salvation issue if you drink alcohol or not. It's just not. But for some of you, it is absolutely a health issue. Some of you get really, really violent when you're drunk. And you get drunk. So let's just go ahead and put drunkenness in the uh, you know, category of sinfulness because it obviously is. But some of you have some really, really bad, you know, <laughs> after things that you're having to deal with, like I'm, I'm getting a little tongue tied here, but you have some things that you have to deal with that are the consequences of some of your actions, the ripple effect of some of the things that you do. So if you're an angry drunk, maybe you're getting in fights, maybe you're breaking things, maybe you're hurting people, right? Some pe- some of you are horny drunks, right? <laughs> you know, you get drunk and then you start making bad decisions, right? You never really wanted to sleep with that, you know, the secretary at the office or with the old flame from high school that you just connected back with on Facebook or whatever the thing might be. But then all of a sudden you start drinking and then you start making bad decisions. You start drinking alone. And then that leads to more bad decisions, right? You're able to kind of keep your discipline in in those types of things. But when you're drunk, you just feel the need to look at porn and jerk off, right? I mean, that's a problem. Like we talked about that on the last podcast too. I mean, there's so many different things for a lot of you that you just, you're not responsible enough and you're not disciplined enough to actually drink alcohol. You can't enjoy it responsibly. 
And so for you, I would say, you know, be an abstentionist, abstain. It's probably the best thing for you and your family. So it's one of those things that you can do, but for you, maybe you shouldn't. Okay. But as we kind of wrap up the subject matter here, I want to kind of talk about how you should respond to people that judge or condemn you for drinking alcohol. Because if you are someone who's a moderationist and you feel like you can drink uh, and you never get to the point of drunkenness and you drink just to enjoy it, um, you know, it's basically a social lubricant for you or something like that. There's basically two things that you should do if someone's judging you or condemning you. Number one, make sure they have a correct exegesis or general knowledge of what scripture says here uh, on the subject matter. I've given you a lot of those resources here in this podcast. And the second thing is just leave them be. So if they're on the same page, if they understand what the Bible says about about this, they, they understand all that, and they just have a different opinion from you, just leave them be. Totally fine. Like, it, this is not one of those subjects that you should just, this is not that hill to die on, in my opinion, in, in just about any way, shape, or form. But here's the thing, guys, and you know this to be true. For most people, they don't have the foggiest idea what the scripture says about it. They just remember hearing drunkenness talked about in their church as a negative thing, which it is, but then they just skip out on what it says in Psalm 104, right? That it was, it's a gift from God. It was given to us that kind of reveals part of his glory to us as humans, as his created, created beings, right? And so that's something that I find that that's really, really important for us to think about because some of you guys want, want to argue about everything and every hill is a good enough hill to die on. And this is one of those things where it's just, again, make sure that they know what the scripture says. And if they don't, I feel like that's your job as their brother in Christ to educate them. Don't educate them from a, a pious point of view. Like, oh, I know all these things and I will now share them with you, loser idiot. Like, you don't have to do it that way. But she's like, hey, well, have you ever actually looked at this subject? Have you ever actually studied? Because that's something that I've done. Uh, should we get together and actually talk about that? We'll talk about it over coffee. And maybe we'll transition to whiskey or beer afterwards or something like that. I mean, make it a joke. But at the end of the day, just leave it be. After the subject's been completely talked through, just leave it alone and kind of move on with your day. So guys, I hope that was really helpful for you. Uh, it was helpful for me going through some of this research because it kind of helped me think through some of the last stages of my philosophy in this area. So I felt like that was helpful. But as we kind of wrap up here, I know a lot of you guys out there are are drinkers that you're, you're beer guys. Maybe you like uh, different mixed drinks. You like vodka, gin, something like that. But as I've talked about on this podcast before, I am a whiskey guy. So I really, really like whiskey. And a question I get somewhat often is, you know, what should I buy? What type of whiskey should I get? But also at the same time, I get this idea that most people just don't really know what's out there. And, you know, if you're in California or if you're in Idaho or if you're in Louisiana or if you're in New York, what's available to you is going to be a little bit different. So I'm going to give you all some recommendations actually here. So even if you're not a whiskey person, maybe you know someone in your life that is a whiskey person. So these are maybe good gift ideas or something like that. But I want to give you all a, a list of a bunch of different types of whiskey. And these are the best, I guess, easy-ish whiskeys to find. So if you go to most places, uh, most liquor stores, you should be able to find these things pretty easily. So I'm not going to be giving you recommendations for like the best in all these different categories. So don't email me or tweet me and be like, oh man, you've never had any good stuff, blah, blah. Trust me, I've had a lot of, a lot of very good whiskey, but I feel like it's kind of ridiculous and a little bit useless if I give y'all a bunch of recommendations for whiskeys that you might never see again in your entire life. So just to kind of run down 
First, I'm going to give you some scotch recommendations. So for those of you who do know what scotch is, you do understand that there are five different scotch regions. And so there's Isla, Highland, Lowland, Speyside, and Campbelltown. And so each one of those regions has different distilleries and, you know, they get their water from different sources and they kind of go through things in a different way. And so you're going to get a little bit of a different taste from those, but let me give you some recommendations. So from Isla, which is my favorite of the five scotch regions, that's going to be more of a peaty, smoky. Um, I would look at Ardbeg 10. Ugadale and Anoa. So that those are all Ardbeg. So that's A-R-D-B-E-G. Um, but the 10-year-old is great. The Ugadale is always going to be out there. That's U-I-G-E-A-D-A-I-L. And then Anoa, A-N space O-A. So that's something that's really, really important um, for you guys to know is that all those are pretty... Uh, pretty prevalent. You can find those just about anywhere. And then another Isla is Lagavulin. And so Lagavulin is fantastic. And you're going to be looking at the eight year, the 12 year and the 16 year. The 16 year is the most common of all of those, but those are a couple of Isla picks for you. All right, next up we have the Highlands. So I'll go through these pretty quickly. Highland Park, which is actually the northernmost distillery in the world. Uh, Highland Park 15 is fantastic. If you can afford the 18-year-old, that's pretty prevalent. It's absolutely wonderful. It's one of my favorites. Then you have Glenmorangie, the original, uh, the 10-year. So the Glenmorangie original is it's super available everywhere, but it's a very, very light introduction to scotch. So if you've never had scotch before, I would not suggest going with an Ardbeg or a Lagavulin. Try that one out. It's going to be very citrusy, very light, uh, very easy drinker. And then we have the Oban 14 and also Macallan 12. So those are some good Highlands. Then we got some some Lowlands here. So um, there's a couple that I would suggest to you. First is the Glenkitchie 12 and then the Ahentoshan Okay. It's really, really hard to say, but Ahentoshan, it's a 12 year old. And guys, for some of these, I know it's like what I'm never going to be able to remember these. I'm going to include these in the show notes. So I think they're all spelled uh, correctly. I think I did a decent enough job for you. So, um, the next is Speyside. So Speyside is a very kind of underrated area, uh, region of Scotland where they distill whiskey, uh, Glenfiddich 14 year old. It's finished in American oak barrels. That one's fantastic. Also the Glenlivet 12 year old and the Craganmore 12. Those are good Speysides. And then lastly here on the scotches, we're going to look at the Campbelltown and Springbank. That's kind of the the big time distillery there in Campbelltown region. And so Springbank 10-year-old is absolutely fantastic. So you should check that out. Now let's talk about a few bourbons. So again, I know a lot of you guys out there are bourbon drinkers. There's so many different types of bourbons out there now. And a lot of them have gotten really expensive and really hard to find. So these are the ones that I feel like are, are fairly easy to find and you should be able to find uh, in your local area. So the first is Michter's Toasted Barrel or Michter's Sour Mash. So Michter's has a line of a lot of different things, but those are a couple that have a unique uh, taste bill to them. So you should check those out. Uh, Buffalo Trace is another one. So the big distillery out in Kentucky is Buffalo Trace, but this is actually their namesake whiskey. Also the W.L. Weller Antique 107. That used to be a shelf turd. You could find it all over the place and now it's harder to find, but that's a great one. Four Roses Single Barrel. A lot of people that know a lot about bourbon, that's one of their favorite everyday drinkers. So Four Roses Single Barrel. And the last one is one that not a whole lot of people have or have uh, drank before. It's Wyoming Whiskey. Wyoming Whiskey. So those are some bourbons. Now some other American whiskeys that I feel like are fantastic. Stranahan's. They're out of Denver, Colorado. They've got the original yellow label. They've got the Diamond Peak, which is the black label. And they've got another one that's uh, Stranahan's finished in a sherry cask. It's got a maroon label. All of those are great. They're a little bit expensive, but all of those are absolutely fantastic, easy to find. Another one is Balcones Texas Single Malt. So again, I know if you don't know a whole lot about whiskey, it can't be called scotch unless it's made in Scotland. That's actually an international law. 
law, but this is a whiskey that's made in the same way, but it's made in Texas by a company called Balcony, so that one's solid. And then also High West does a lot of different whiskeys, and they're one called Campfire. Is fantastic. So if you're looking for some good American whiskeys, those are some. Now let's move on to Rise. I know Rise have kind of gotten a uh, gotten more popular uh, recently here, and so Angels Envy Rye is probably my favorite rye that I've ever had. It's a uh, it's a rye finished in a rum cask, so it's absolutely fantastic. Peerless is another one. You can find it. Uh, it's a little bit expensive. It's around a hundred dollars for a two year old rye, but it really is good. High West again is uh, showing up. They have something called a double rye. It's actually fairly cheap, but that's a good rye. And then another one is Michter's Straight Rye. So we talked about a couple of Michter's up there with the bourbons, but those are some good ryes as well. Again, guys, these are not the best ryes ever, ever, ever. These are just the ones that I think that you'll be able to find fairly easily. All right, let's move on to Irish. So Irish, you're going to get a little bit of a sweeter taste out of those. So Redbreast 15-year-old is great. If you can afford the 21-year-old, freaking go for it, man. It's absolutely fantastic. But then also Green Spot is another Irish. I know y'all are expecting me to say proper 12 because I'm a Connor guy, but uh, here's the thing. Uh, McGregor is a great fighter and all that, that whiskey is just okay. So I'll keep it on my shelf uh, just for, uh, I don't know, because I'm a fan, but it's not the, the greatest. It's certainly not better than Green Spot or Red Breast. Now we'll move on to Japanese. We only got a couple of categories left. So Japanese, there's one that I think won some uh, some best whiskey awards for this year, but it's Nika, N-I-K-K-A, coffee grain whiskey. And it's not coffee like the drink. It's C-O-F-F-E-Y. So Nika coffee grain whiskey, a great Japanese whiskey. And then another one is Hibiki Harmony. And so again, you'll have all these later. And then one last one, it's kind of a, a unique one that most people have never heard of. Most bars don't have it. Most uh, liquor stores have it, but it's maybe on the bottom shelf toward the right or something like that. But it's Amrut. A-M-R-U-T. It's an Indian whiskey, as in from India. And so that one is surprisingly good. Because here's the thing about the distillation process and the aging process in Scotland. It's always, you know, it's colder up there uh, for the most part. But in India, I mean, they're hanging out by the equator. That's where this distillery is. So the, the distillation process and the aging process is a lot quicker down there because of how hot it is. So it, pr- it produces a really interesting taste of whiskey. So those are just some that I know guys have asked me before. So if you're not a whiskey person, you're like, oh my God gosh, I'm glad this is over. But um, those are good ones for, for you to find fairly easily. So uh, go ahead and buy some of those. Give those a try and let me know what you think. Uh, but I do want to let you guys know kind of what my top three whiskeys ever are, because this does come up in conversation uh, somewhat regularly. Like what's the best you've ever had? So, and here are my top three whiskeys and I'll go from three down to one in terms of the best whiskeys I've ever had in my life. So third is Highland Park 40 year old. So um, I had never had before I had this 40 year old, I had never had anything that was older than 25 but it was absolutely fantastic. Um, Highland Park, again, is one of my favorite distilleries. It's one of my favorite scotches, but the 40-year-old was something entirely different. It was absolutely incredible. My number two favorite whiskey of all time is Pappy Van Winkle Family Family Reserve 20-year-old. So if you're familiar with Pappy, you have the old Rip Van Winkle 10-year, you have uh, the 12-year Family Reserve, you have, uh, you have the, you have, well, you have the 12-year, then you have the Family Reserve Rye, which is actually a 13-year-old, then you've got a 15-year-old, Pappy Van Winkle, you've got the 20-year-old Pappy Van Winkle, and then you've got, you know, the unicorn, the 23-year-old Pappy Van Winkle. But here's the thing about Pappy is it brings in a lot of oakiness because most bourbons are not nearly that old. I mean, a 23-year-old bourbon is fairly rare and fairly crazy, but the 15-year-old has quite a bit of oakiness in the taste. It's great, but it still has quite a bit of oakiness. The 23-year-old has a ton of oakiness in it. I don't want to say it ruins the whiskey because it's it's really, really fantastic, but there's quite a bit of oak to it. So if you don't really like that, 
If you're not really a campfire or a cigar person, it, it doesn't really uh, fit a lot of people's palates. But the 20-year-old is is the best bourbon I've ever had in my entire life. It is just fantastic. Um, the, the cherry uh, notes that you get in the nose and also in the finish, an incredibly long finish. I remember one time when I had a glass of this, I went back to the glass about 30 minutes later after I'd already drank everything that was in it and just smelled the glass. And you still had pretty much the entire nose left in the glass. So Pappy Van Winkle, 20-year-old, I mean, it's like $2,000 on the secondary market. It's absolutely insane. But if you can find it at, uh, at retail, gosh, buy all of it that you can. And then my number one whiskey that I've ever had in my entire life is Lagavulin. 25 year old. So I mentioned Lagavulin earlier, talked about the eight year, the 12 year and the 16 year. But, uh, one of my buddies, he's, he's a, uh, very prominent whiskey collector here in the United States. We're really in the world. And he's a buddy of mine here in Oklahoma. And I tried, he had some of that open in his office and there's just nothing like it. I mean, it's an Isla, which I already like. Lagavulin is already one of my favorite whiskeys out there. But the 25-year-old, they just they did something special with that whiskey. So that is an absolutely amazing whiskey. I don't know that I'll ever even get to have it again, but up to this point, it's the best whiskey I've ever had in my entire life. So guys, before we let you out of here, we are going to do a quick resilience boost. As you know, by now, we are a men's ministry and our mission is cultivating manly resilience. And specifically, we do that by providing content that forges spiritual, mental, and physical toughness. So today, we're going to work technically with mental and physical resilience. But I'm going to give a link to you, and I, I really kind of went right into the uh, quick resilience boost because it related to the whiskey thing. I know for a lot of you guys out there that are trying to wanting to get into whiskey because brown liquor is becoming more popular, uh, but maybe you don't really know everything about it. When someone says single malt, you don't really know what that means. When someone says bourbon, you don't really know what that means. So I'm giving you a a like a 20 minute little YouTube video called Understanding Whiskey. It's one of the better, shorter little things that kind of explain the history of whiskey, how we get it, some of the different tastes, some of the different notes you should get. But also I, I just hear a lot of people make really, really stupid mistakes when they're describing whiskey. They're like, oh, no, no, no. I don't like scotch, but I like whiskey. Because when you think about it, whiskey is the macro category, right? That's like saying, oh, I don't like baseball, but I like sports. Like that, that doesn't really make any sense because whiskey is the main category. And then you have all the offshoots. You have your scotch and then you have your bourbons and then you have your eyes and your, you know, kind of the categories we were talking about earlier. Right. And if someone says, well, I don't like scotch, it's like all of them. There's five regions. Like you've had scotches, the big scotches from all those regions. I don't really like rye. I mean, how many ryes have you had? Did you have Jim Beam rye? And then you're like, I don't really want to have any of that anymore. So it's a very, very educational thing for you. And again, if you're not into whiskey, just skip it. But I, I know that a lot of people have this conversation with me and they'll ask me my input. So I thought that this would be helpful to you. So I'll make sure that that gets out to you. All right, guys, thanks so much for listening to this podcast. As always, we really appreciate it. Please subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Google Play and refer your friends to listen and share this on social media. Guys, if we deserve a five-star review, please leave us one. That is how this podcast will continue to grow and continue to get out to more people. And if you would, please leave us a few comments, a few sentences to let us know why you like the content that we're putting out. I'm currently booking speaking engagements for the entirety of 2019. So if you want me to come speak to your team, to your church, to your men's event, to your whatever, hit me up via email, info at undaunted.life, info at undaunted.life. Our website is www.undaunted.life and you can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at undauntedlife or facebook.com backslash undauntedlife. Check out our free devotionals on the YouVersion Bible app. Just search Undaunted Life under plans. And we want to thank the band August Burns Red for allowing us to use their music library for our content. The intro or outro track on this podcast is their song King of Sorrow, which is off their latest record entitled Phantom Anthem. The links of all of this are in the description. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Remember, keep cultivating manly resilience. 
Keep forging spiritual, mental, and physical toughness. Keep seeking the Lion of Judah.